Gentlemen, this is what we've been waiting for. The world's most valuable object is on its way to Syracuse. It's a shame it'll never get there. <laughs> After today, we retire to Fiji. <laughs> Kale! I kept it. Bye! Let's get rich! That last move? Pretty cool, huh? I thought you overworked it. Just a bit. Oh, you <sighs> overworked it. <laughs> In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. <laughs> And welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 242, Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And this is the first episode to celebrate Verbal Diorama's fifth birthday. Woohoo! This podcast is now five years old, which is incredible. It's been an incredible journey to be doing this podcast for five years. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener, whether you're a regular returning listener, whether you've been listening to this podcast for five years, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. This is the sixth episode of Animation Season 2024. And as always, thank you so much to everyone who's listened to the previous episodes in Animation Season, starting with Wally. How to Train Your Dragon, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Nimona, and The Black Cauldron have all preceded this episode. And for the fifth birthday of this podcast, I decided to do something a little bit different and celebrate flops, box office bombs, whatever you want to call them, while fully realising that this podcast could also flop in the process. But let's hope not because I've been doing it for five years. So, Sinbad and Legend of the Seven Seas was actually going to be the first ever episode of this podcast. So it's taken me five years to get round to doing this. And this was made at a time when DreamWorks Animation was seeing good to huge success with CG animation after Ants, which was obviously good, and then huge with Shrek. And then good to bad success with hand-drawn animation after The Prince of Egypt, which was good, and The Road to El Dorado, which is actually a decent movie, but it didn't do so well. That would be a good contender for this season had it not been Sinbad. 
But the idea to adapt Sinbad into animation had been around for 10 years before this movie's release. So let's go into the history and legacy of a movie that's mostly forgotten now, but doesn't deserve to be. Here's the trailer for Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. No wave is too huge. No enemy is too powerful for the most daring thief on the seven seas. Sinbad! Uh, yeah. But the greatest challenge he'll ever face... We are going to die! ...is the newest member of his crew. A ship is no place for a woman. You are the most ungrateful, impossible, insufferable... I'd like to introduce you to your new bunkmate. Oh, if he starts hugging your leg, it means he likes you. This summer... Five on Marina. Oh, no. no. They've got a goddess on their tails. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Run! Danger at every turn. Let's go! And a whole shipload of adventure. Give that guy a raise. Still think a ship's no place for a woman? I think I'm gonna be sick. From DreamWorks Pictures. Brad Pitt, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Who's bad? Sinbad. Captain, it's the edge of the world! Pay up. It's flat. The sailor of legend is framed by the goddess Erist for the theft of the Book of Peace and must travel to her realm at the end of the world to retrieve it and save the life of his childhood friend, Prince Proteus. Let's run through the cast. There's some huge names in this cast. We have Brad Pitt as Sinbad, Catherine Zeta-Jones as Marina, Michelle Pfeiffer as Eris, Joseph Fiennes as Prince Proteus, Dennis Haysbert as Kale, and Timothy West as King Dimas. Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas was written by John Logan, directed by Tim Johnson and Patrick Gilmore, and based on Sinbad the Sailor and Damon and Pythias. A brave and hard-working merchant from Baghdad once set out from the port town of Basra with his finest merchandise in hopes of making his fortune trading with distant lands. Through many trials and setbacks, the brave and devout sailor rose to become a trusted lieutenant of the revered Caliph Harun al-Rashid, the spiritual leader of the Muslim world, and his reign is traditionally regarded to be the beginning of the Islamic Golden Age. This merchant's name was Sinbad, and his story is told in the many versions of the Arabian Nights, the collections of tales dating back to 13th century Syria, in their earliest surviving form. The Sinbad story belongs to later Egyptian versions. This movie isn't the first time the character has been featured in film. I grew up watching Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, but he first appeared back in animation in 1935 in an animated short titled Sinbad the Sailor that was directed by Ub Iwerks and in live action in 1942's Arabian Nights. The most well-known probably being the three Columbia Sinbad movies, the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, the latter two featuring stop-motion effects by the legendary Ray Harryhausen. In this version of the story, though, Sinbad is Sicilian rather than Arabic. The love of his life, Marina, is a noble woman of Thebes. His best friend is Proteus, the son of King Dimas, 
and the antagonist is Eris, the goddess of chaos. Every Arab reference has been removed and replaced with something vaguely Greek. In Greek mythology, Eris is indeed the goddess of chaos. By setting the movie in and around Thebes and Syracuse, the action is completely relocated from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. The stories of the diligent and compassionate yet ever so slightly greedy sailor is replaced by a Greek story about friendship. Greek references are used throughout, replacing specific references to Arabic and Persian culture. Perhaps this would have been the ideal opportunity for Hollywood filmmakers to challenge those preconceived notions about Muslims and Arabs. But this version is Sicilian and the Greek story it's based on, Damon and Pythias, was the setting for the original incarnation of the story by screenwriters Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. They are no strangers to this podcast because they also worked on Aladdin, as well as Godzilla 98, and DreamWorks mega hit from two years prior to this, Shrek. Rossio and Elliot first had the idea for a Sinbad movie, a romantic adventure based on the Damon and Pythias story, which is the Greek tale of ultimate friendship. They thought it worked incredibly well to take the basic Damon and Pythias relationship and recast it into a love triangle as a screwball romantic comedy in the vein of It Happened One Night, Bring It Up Baby and What's Up Doc, where a somewhat repressed man and a free-spirited woman, each with their own separate desires, must work together despite their initial animosity to achieve their goals. In the course of their adventures, they change, bringing out the best in each other and fall in love, with Sinbad as a reserved apprentice cartographer who joins Perry, a free-spirited female smuggler, on an adventure. Their treatment, dated the 8th of February 1994, also envisages Michael J. Fox as Sinbad and Mary Stuart Masterson or Bridget Fonda as Perry. The story was based largely on the Sinbad comic book written and illustrated by Eleanor Poirier between 1949 and 1956. In July 1992, four months before Aladdin's release, Disney announced they were adapting the story into a potential animated feature alongside Homer's Odyssey and Pocahontas. Their Sinbad project was cancelled in 1993, but allegedly Jeffrey Katzenberg was incredibly excited at the prospect of Disney's Sinbad. After leaving Disney in 1994, Katzenberg joined David Geffen and Steven Spielberg in founding DreamWorks. Katzenberg was still a bit salty, and Disney had cancelled some ideas he liked, so Katzenberg decided to revive them, including Sinbad, and contacted Elliot and Rossio to help with the outlines and treatment in December 2000 with Katzenberg tapping Gladiator screenwriter John Logan for the script. Logan was an odd pick, having never worked on an animated feature before, but he had his own reasons for taking on the project. He wanted to work on something he could show his young nieces and nephews. Bear in mind up to this point, we'd had Katzenberg try to take on Pixar and release Ants two months before a book slide, which hadn't exactly worked. They'd had a success story with The Prince of Egypt, a box office bomb with The Road to El Dorado, Katzenberg's other dream project, also written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, success with Chicken Run, incredible success with Shrek, and then disappointment with Spirit, a stallion of the Cimarron. Apart from The Prince of Egypt, which catered to the traditional religious viewers a bit more, the rest of DreamWorks' traditional hand-drawn 2D animation had faltered at the box office. So let's go into the original script for Sinbad and what could have been. The story is remarkably similar to what we ended up with. There's a book, but this book is actually called The Book of Fates and names the future ruler of Syracuse, so it's quite important. Sinbad and Proteus are best friends and Proteus is unable to confess his love for the ambassador bearing the book, who is Roxanne. So Sinbad helps him woo her, but lo and behold, Sinbad is framed for stealing the magical book 
and has to go on a quest to prove his innocence and save the life of his friend. Sinbad also falls in love with Roxanne, who stows away on his ship. Roxanne, for her part, also loves them both. But as they reach Tartarus, Eris offers the deal, as long as Sinbad answers truthfully if he is in love with Roxanne, but he can't admit to betraying his friend Proteus. This lets Roxanne know he loves her, but he loses the book in exchange. Sinbad returns to Syracuse to take Proteus's place and be killed, but he's proven his worth as a good man. The Book of Fates is returned and Roxanne is named the ruler on the book's return. She becomes Queen of Syracuse, pardons Sinbad of his crimes, and Roxanne and Proteus end up together and Sinbad chooses to sail the world. The end. Elliot and Rossio love the idea. DreamWorks asked them both to be creative consultants on the movie. They managed to get John Logan on board and he focused on the Greco-Roman versions of the character. This was perhaps an offshoot of his days writing Gladiator, but the studio, they had notes on this screenplay. The first note, Sinbad and Roxanne should end up together at the end and be shown to have had children because heroes have to end up together at the end. It's worth noting that the children obviously don't appear in the movie, but the important thing for the studio was Sinbad and Roxanne end up together. Also, let's rename Roxanne to Marina because C's Marina. You get it. Now, the other thing the studio said was we realised that Sinbad and Roxanne ending up together makes both Sinbad and Roxanne, now called Marina, look bad when Proteus puts his life on the line, interesting both his friend and his love. So, further point, let's make Proteus and Marina in an arranged marriage rather than genuinely be in love. Also, let's change the name of the book to the Book of Peace rather than the Book of Fates and have it just be a MacGuffin, a book they need just because, and then you don't need the truth about Sinbad loving Marina. This list of studio requests was sent to Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. Terry Rossio would end up sending a memo to DreamWorks explaining that they basically jumped the shark and to persuade them to change their minds, knowing that the studio would just ignore his pleas. The memo is glorious, and I will link to it in the show notes because genuinely wonderful and it's great that Terry Rossio had such passion about his Sinbad project to basically say DreamWorks you're being dumb. Basically he likens the romance aspect to be as valuable as that in Casablanca, references character arcs and motivations in Casablanca and how Rick and Ilsa in Casablanca don't end up together at the end. The studio did read his memo and unsurprisingly didn't agree with his summations. They said not every film has to be like Casablanca to be a good film. Months would pass and he saw another preview of the movie and decided to write them another memo about story decision making and the struggle between Rossio and Elliot's original, more mature idea and the company's kid-friendly story and characters. Due to their general dissatisfaction with what Sinbad was becoming, Rossio and Elliot departed the project in April 2001. The tonal shifts didn't end there. Michelle Pfeiffer would tell EW that her character Eris was rewritten multiple times, firstly for being too sexual and then too dull, and the writers struggled to find a happy balance, with fixes to problems that just caused further problems. Fundamentally, they wanted a family movie, clearly aimed at younger children, and Eris didn't fit into that, but they'd written themselves into a hole. It's worth adding, though, that Pfeiffer's performance is one of the better ones in the movie, and the character herself is pretty standout. With a huge name cast, including Pfeiffer, Brad Pitt as Sinbad, who replaced Russell Crowe, and Catherine Zeta-Jones as Marina. Production would start and Sinbad would be the first DreamWorks animation to fully utilise Linux software, starting with storyboards. The artists first drew sketches on paper to visualise the scene, 
which were later edited into animatics. For the character animation, rough character sketches were passed through the Toon Shooter software, which digitized the sketches. From that point, the animators were able to easily integrate the animation into existing scenes. And just like other DreamWorks animated features, Walter would be a key component of the setting of the movie, especially because he is the legend of the Seven Seas and all that. For the visual effects, DreamWorks Animation had originally used Autodesk Maya to create water effects, but the ocean simulation they used on Ants and Shrek wasn't used on Sinbad because they didn't want or need the same photorealistic water. From composite ripple distortion on a painting of water, to fluid simulations and controlling wave shapes, they took inspiration from the abyss for the sirens, integrating 3D with stylized traditional splashes hitting rock, so they had 2D animators draw splashes which were texture mapped onto little cards. They also developed a rapid slashing technique to create a surface and then send ripples through the surface and better integrated the 3D visual effects with stylized hand-drawn splashes. This was demanding of the Linux operating system. And the other issue they had was hair, specifically women's hair. Most of the female characters have 16 strands of hair and each strand has a minimum of seven different controls used by animators to manipulate that strand's shape. Getting one strand to move properly was a challenge, but getting all 16 to move correctly was a true test of technology and patience. Even though the film was primarily hand-drawn, the goal here, as with previous attempts, was to push the tradigital convergence even further by using as much CGI as possible to try and tap into the perceived market for it at the time. And the directors, who should be proud of the animation, continue to talk enthusiastically about it, even after the film's failure, so at least the team had fun with the process, even though it didn't work out as planned. And standard marketing techniques were employed to try and increase the film's chances when 2003 rolled around. Atari released a tie-in PC game shortly before the home media release, and this had been closely overseen by director Patrick Gilmore. Hasbro even debuted its own line of action figures featuring Sinbad as part of the G.I. Joe brand, while Burger King launched a promotional toy line that included constellation cards for each toy. Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas released on the 2nd of July 2003 in the US, the same week as Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines, Legally Blonde 2 Red, White and Blonde, and 28 Days Later, and all would beat it in the box office. Although Sinbad had only been out a day at that point, and it reached 15th at the box office. In its second week, though, it could only climb to 7th, that's where it would peak and sit out for two weeks before exiting the top 10. And even after 21 years, Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas is still most notoriously remembered for being one of the biggest box office failures ever. Not just in terms of animation, either. On its $60 million budget, it grossed $115 million worldwide, which doesn't sound that bad. But this was the cherry on top of DreamWorks' already terrible year. Sinbad is estimated to have lost an incredible $125 million, failing so badly that the studio was almost completely destroyed. In contrast, Titan AE, directed by Don Bluth, lost roughly $100 million. The Good Dinosaur and Treasure Planet lost approximately $85 million each for Disney. And DreamWorks' Rise of the Guardians lost $87 million. But the biggest reason why Sinbad sank was probably due to a Disney movie that came out the week after Sinbad, which turned into the fourth biggest movie of 2003, and had a quite a similar premise, also written by Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, and that is Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. 
And just FYI, Elizabeth Swan didn't end up with Jack Sparrow in that movie either. Even though it's not exactly DreamWorks' finest work, Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas truly didn't deserve to end this way. Katzenberg famously said after the movie's failure that, quote, I think the idea of traditional story being told using traditional animation is likely a thing of the past, unquote. His feelings towards hand-drawn animation were already, at best, ambivalent. This just cemented the switch to full CG animation, and not just for DreamWorks, but for Disney as well. Disney would one day return to it with The Princess and the Frog, but that so far has been a one-off. DreamWorks' plans for a franchise of Sinbad films chronicling the character's many adventures was killed off by its underperformance. There is a short interactive film that served as a sequel called Sinbad in the Cyclops Island, and on the DVD of Sinbad you can choose which character to see their point of view of the story, which is a cool feature. But as I said at the start of this episode, this was going to be the first episode of this podcast, and five years later this movie deserves to finally get its dues on verbal diorama. It does have its issues but it didn't deserve to bomb as badly as it did. If this didn't have to compete with Shrek and Shrek 2 as DreamWorks animated staples, if it just needed to compare to The Prince of Egypt, it may have fared a lot better. It's got a lot going for it, including a female character with actual agency who rather impressively saves the entire male crew of the ship from sirens. It's just sadly been forgotten over time, and it doesn't have that many redeeming features to actually be remembered. But being forgettable doesn't mean it deserves to be known as one of the biggest box office flops of all time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast after five years. It's incredible. I would love to hear your thoughts on Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas. Do you like it? Have you seen it? Do you think it deserves to be a huge commercial flop? Let me know on social media. Get in touch with me. For the fifth birthday of this podcast, it would be amazing if you could get involved and help this podcast grow. Because while I am going to be looking at flops, I really don't want this podcast to flop. So if you could take a moment to leave a rating and review wherever you found this podcast, that would be amazing. And if you do want to talk to me about Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, you can find me at Verbal Diorama. I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterbox. And if you do like listening to film history, well, there's a lot of episodes of this podcast for you to listen to. But I would love if you could just simply tell a friend or family member about this podcast and get them to listen to it too. And if you like this episode on Sinbad, Legend of the Seven Seas, you might also like the very first episode of this podcast that I did, which was, instead of this, on Titan AE, which literally did kill a studio. So it was kind of a bit more worthy at the time. There's a lot of similarities between Sinbad and Titan AE. And if you have enjoyed Sinbad, you will probably enjoy that movie too. Also, I would recommend episode 36, which is on Treasure Planet. Again, a Disney movie that flopped, but that doesn't deserve to because there's some actually great things going on in Treasure Planet. As always, give me feedback. Let me know what you think. And the next episode, you don't have to wait long for the poop to hit the fan for the fifth birthday of Verbal Diorama. Because tomorrow, if you're listening to this on release day, tomorrow... We're going to be going from a movie that almost bankrupted DreamWorks to a movie that contains literal poop, voiced by Sir Patrick Stewart. Yes, it's time for the critical flop that is the Emoji Movie, which has a very fascinating story behind its conception. But mostly, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for supporting this podcast for five years. Thank you to the amazing patrons of this podcast for their continued and unwavering support. I am so grateful to you all. 
If you want to get in touch with me, you can. You can email verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can go to my website, verbaldiorama.com. And you can also find my stuff over at Film Stories too. And finally... Wake up, my beauties. Rise and shine. It's a brand new day and the mortal world is at peace. But not for long. Just look at them. I pull one tiny thread and their whole world unravels into chaos. Glorious chaos. Bye. Blue vision of me.